Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. We are back, folks. Brittany Hartley, how are you doing? I'm so good. I missed you. How was your trip? Oh, my goodness. It was so great. Um let, let me spend just a minute on this. So mm-hmm. went to Los Angeles to visit uh, one of my daughters and our third grandchild, our uh, grandson Hunter. And uh, while in LA, I was on top of a rooftop party. Uh, a guy with, and his uh, gentleman and his wife were kind enough. They're, they're listeners and followers of uh, our work. And we had a rooftop party with a bunch of listeners. It was a really nice rooftop. I mean, you're talking pool tables and massage chairs and <laughs> full full restrooms and oh my goodness it was amazing and uh, on top of that uh they took us to a really nice restaurant i had the cheapest thing on the menu which was salmon for like 32 bucks you know and uh, then we went to another rooftop another night um it was uh it's called like floor 73 or something in la and it's the 73rd floor. And some people get in and some people don't. The, the young people in front of us got turned away because they had open toe shoes. That was the reason. I had open toe shoes. And uh, there was like a nod, nod, wink, wink. You get to go in because I was a little older, dressed a little nicer. So I got to go. And uh, we had a few drinks on, on the 73rd floor. And suddenly the LAPD helicopter, which they call the they call ghetto birds. And the helicopter came over to right where the bar was and just hovered there. You know? And uh, about about 25 feet away from the edge of the roof, and it turned its lights on, whoop, 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 you know, and the people are waving and making noise. And suddenly he like dipped towards the bar and then went to go catch the bad guys. It was, it was so cool. <laughs> uh, we went to see the Getty Museum, which has a bunch of um, really good art. One of the listeners, uh, Jim, uh, took us there and, uh, and showed us that. Uh, Monet's and Renoir's and, you know, you name it, all the, all the artists that are in the cool club, it was all their work. One of the pieces was a $65 million art piece hanging on the wall, you know, inches from my face. And I could have just, you know, punched a hole in it if I wanted, but yeah, obviously I'm not that kind of person, but he, he warned us. I mean, there's people that come in every year trying to pull permanent markers out of their pockets. And there's a whole staff of security that will pounce on you the moment you do anything that looks weird. See, who would but, have thought uh, that, you know, Mormon Discussions podcast would lead you into this high life, oh, you man. know, that you're living. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a posh life. You know, I'm a little bougie now. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, it's people, people hear that and they're going to go, oh, yeah, you know, tons of money. But that's not it. Like you go to these places and people are so grateful for the work that you do that people treat you good. They, hmm. people want to be in space with you. So you, you, someone wants to take you to a nice restaurant. Someone wants to take you on a tour to a museum. Somebody wants to you know, they just want to hang out and, and people, you know, you know, this people are hurting in this space and they're just grateful that somebody helps them make sense of these things. Can you see like after a weekend like that, the temptation of like so many spiritual gurus who started out doing really cool work and then they start to get into the high life a little bit and then they get trapped in it and then they, 
you know, blow up their lives? Do you see that, like how that happens? I only want to be mildly known. So that's, so anything <laughs> that hurts that is bad. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I want to be the girl on The Bachelor who the very first episode doesn't get a rose and nobody remembers her name. <laughs> that's me. Something we can all aspire to. There you go. <laughs> but it was kind of fun. Well, we missed you. I podcasted last week on the concept of God and I, RFM was podcasting without you. And I, I did that one and I listened to his and I was like, no, it's just missing a certain Bill Real-esque-ness you know, we just, we really miss you. So we're glad you're back. Well, I, I, I feel like I mesh really well with you when we have these conversations and uh, I miss them. I, I sat and listened to some things you mentioned listening to, um, oh man, I just went blank. Uh, the, the, the TV evangelist, Tammy Faye. Uh, yes. Yeah. Tammy Faye. So I started listening to, or watching that and I got maybe 40 minutes in or something my mind's blown. Like I kind of knew some of that. And my daughter was like, that's crazy. And I'm like, these are real people, baby. I said, that's, we grew up. When you said you hadn't seen it, I was like, Bill real. You have to see this movie. Oh, Tammy Faye. I think it's on Netflix. I think it's on Hulu. Yeah. Hulu. Yeah. Uh, I would recommend it to everybody. You want to see religious. Reli you cray you cray. get to see religion and politics. You know, we always say that they got in bed together. Well, you get to see like how that happened. And it was I love so how they're like having sex in the beginning. You know, like they're right from the start. They're like, hey, like we're hot. We like each other. Like this whole <laughs> religious stuff about not sleeping together. We're just going to break those rules, you know? Yeah, it happened. It was very interesting. Well, this episode is a little bit different than some of our other episodes. With our other episodes, we try, like I really loved the episode where you prepared a lot of information on attachment styles. I came away having learned a lot, had a lot of conversations in my family. And so mm -hmm. a lot of our episodes are like, okay, we're going to, you know, really try to study something and understand something and have a, a conversation about it so other people can learn about this topic too. This episode is going to be totally different in that we have no answers to anything that we're going to talk mm. about. We only have questions. These are yeah. just questions. I have no answers to a single thing that we've prepared today. And the reason that we're doing it, how it relates to Almost Awakened, is that when you leave a religious system and you used to have thought ending cliches, which is as soon as you feel like some deep, weird question, you mm. can just say, oh, I'll figure it out in the next life, or God mm. has a plan for me, or whatever the thought mm. ending thing is. When those go away, um, people can feel overwhelmed that all of a sudden, they have to think about really complex issues without any buffer that they used to have. And mm. so the only real point of this episode is not that Bill and I have the answers to these complex questions, but just that we are in this boat with you. If you feel like after losing those cliches, you are facing really complex issues of being human and thinking about things that maybe some, you know, if, if there's members of your family that are still active in religion, um, that maybe they wouldn't be able to understand. And so that's all we're, that we're doing is like, hey, Bill and I are thinking about that too. And we don't know either. <laughs> and so yeah. it's a little bit different than some of our other podcasts. In, in this idea, I mean, did you mention this, the idea that there is this conference every year where they're sharing dangerous ideas and um, it's gone for a long time. And uh, I went through some of those and those weren't really the ones that caught my eye. I, I was much more appreciative of your list 
which uh, I, as we'll get into, I think people will see why it, it's much more pertinent to our, the conversations we have here. But it, it's fascinating that there is a group of people that get together every year and go, let's have five speakers or 10 speakers and let's talk about what is this year's most dangerous ideas. Yeah, so there's a festival of dangerous ideas that I found because I, I like to listen to Christopher Hitchens. He's such an interesting character for mm. me. And that's where he first presented his idea that all religions are poison, which is a controversial idea. Mm -hmm. And so they have this festival of dangerous ideas, but they also there's also a podcast of dangerous ideas, which is different. And that's where academics go to share their papers that they're too mm. afraid to post publicly because it's mm. it may be too dangerous of an idea. So some of those come from um, the podcast, which is a little bit different than the festival. It, it can sometimes uh, go to different places, but it's interesting that we have to have a place where um, professors can feel safe to present some information that they just say, I, because of my career, I can't present this paper. And yeah. so they do it anonymously on this podcast. And so I just kind of gathered a list of just like, what are dangerous, controversial ideas? And I don't mean like abortion, where we all know kind of the arguments of both sides. We're talking about ideas that are may be dangerous for society to even consider. And so that's mm. a whole different category than just quote unquote controversial, right? Yeah, love it. All right, so I think the first one was yours, Bill. Yeah, sending signals into space to contact extraterrestrial life. So um, I'll have to break this down. I don't wanna to take too much time, but uh, one argument is that science says the universe is so expansive, so large scope and breadth of it, that inevitably, statistically, it is almost certain that there is other intelligent life out there. And if that intelligent life got a head start on us, so for instance, we human beings started to develop, I think they say, roughly 200,000 years ago to maybe a half million years ago or so. And if that ability to uh, think outside the box and to build things, to use your hands, to to make things, the ability to someday get into space, for instance, and to travel at high speeds, whatever that technology is. And again, we live in an age where the government says aliens are probably real, right? Uh, that there are uh, space, there are some type of aircraft out there that no one has an explanation for. The way it can change directions and speeds isn't explainable. So we're in a moment where we're kind of having to go like, maybe there's aliens and the government seems for the first time to be giving credibility to that. So if there's some other life out there, there are humans on this planet who have been sending signals into space. There are governments on this planet who are sending signals into space, hoping to be heard by some life out there somewhere so that we can make contact. But the reason it's dangerous is because a primary reason for people to get off the planet they're on, for instance, much of the reason of why we talk today about needing to get off this planet is because we're destroying it. And someday, even if we don't destroy it, something else will. And so the hope is that we need to get some other place where life can be, uh, is tenable and where resources are available and uh, that we can move our uh, humanity to some other spot. I also know that as humans, any lower species of life, we often put in zoos, we often do experiments on, we often cause great harm and trauma to. So the idea of throwing signals out into space, hoping that you'll be heard by some sentient species that 
perhaps has a million year head start on us. And a million years, by the way, is nothing in the scope of 13.2 billion. So this idea that uh, there might be a species out there somewhere that has evolved for an extra million years than us and has the ability to travel at high speeds and change direction and has technology that we don't have, putting a signal out there is uh, essentially has to in completely invest in the idea that whatever it is that's out there is completely peaceful and wants to work with us and wants to be kind with us. And I just want folks to wrestle with the idea that maybe the reason they left their planet and are in space is because they need resources. They need uh, a planet to live on that can support life. And they're so far ahead of us, it would be similar to how we look at other primates or worse. And what is the likelihood that they could cause us terrible harm, put us in their version of zoos, take our planet, live here, grab our resources. Once you understand the possibility of one is maybe just as good as the other, maybe we shouldn't be sending any signals out there into uh, the hither regions of space. Thoughts? Okay. There was a lot there. I had like five things come up. So I wrote them down because that there that's a lot. It's a lot to think about. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that um, just like really interesting. I don't know, but but there's some really interesting kind of comments that stand out to me. One is um, there's this theory. I heard it from Dawkins, but it was somebody else's theory that um, if there was life in the galaxy, in the universe, and it's the kind of life that would make rocket ships and explore other planets, that kind of like really competitive, like we have a really competitive life, like we make Rome and we conquer and that's how we survive, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, if that is required in order to make rocket ships, then the theory was that there's life all over the universe, but there are these brief moments and then they blow themselves up because they're so competitive and they steal and they conquer in order to survive and get to that level that eventually they just blow themselves up. And so the universe is full of just like, there was life over there. There was life over there. But to get to that level, you're just going to self implode at some point, which is an interesting idea. And then I listen to Neil Tyson DeGrasse from time to time. He's like a scientist that I can understand. Mm -hmm. I don't have a super science brain, but he can really, I really like his podcast. And he gets questions, of course, all the time. People want to talk to him about aliens. People want to talk to him about the government and aliens. And he said something that I really liked. He just said, it's mysterious, which is like, I, I don't know what this is. I don't know. I mean, there's lots of different things that it could be both in the kind of alien world and also just kind of human um, touch to it. And he just said, it's, it's mysterious and I'm okay that it's mysterious. But his thing was that even if uh, there were aliens and they came to earth and found no intelligent life here, essentially, it would still be easier to save We're talking earth. talking to you, Putin. Yeah. It would still be easier to save earth than it would be to move earth. And mm. so he just says, it's mysterious. I don't know. And like, he just doesn't really like spend a lot of time in the alien space, even though he gets a lot of questions about mm -hmm. it. And he just says, you know what? It's mysterious and I don't know, but no matter how no matter which way you slice it, it's going to be easier to save Earth logistically than it is to, you know, do the transport idea to wherever. And so he's just all about let's just let's just save Earth anyway. It doesn't matter. 
And then uh, Elon Musk said something. He said that there's either a lot of aliens in the universe and they just sent, essentially ignore us or there's none. And that was his idea. And he said, both are terrifying. So which would it rather, would you rather there be no life in the universe or so much alien life and they just don't pay attention to us because we're little tiny ants? Like, yeah. which would you prefer? Um, both, both scare, <laughs> both scare me. They're both terrifying. And that, yeah. that's, that was interesting how he said that. I am scared um, that like, wouldn't it be the, like my big, one of my biggest fears is like, we're going to blow ourselves up over some theocracy. And if, if this is it, as far as life in the universe and it blows up because we're fighting over yeah. what God exists in the next life, wouldn't that just be the saddest way to end the story of life on earth? Like that would be the most tragic ending to the longest story that would be so sad that like 13 knocks the wind out of me. billion years of evolution of, of, only and and gone for that yeah. oh that just all because makes of myth so upset all because of all because of myth and belief and allegiances to those myths and beliefs and then one more thought came up i listen to a lot of podcasts so i'm yeah, like referring it. to other people but christopher hitchens said something one time that he said just arrested him and he said that um Whoever is, if we survive, whatever is here to see the sun explode at the end of the sun's life will be as different from us as we are to bacteria. Mm. And that's a really crazy thought too. And we'll talk about like transhumanism and some of those ideas a little bit later, but that was an interesting idea too of like, this story does have an end, like the sun goes at some point. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There, I don't spend a lot this, of time in the alien space. I'll be honest. <laughs> there is two things. There is this argument that uh, we may not even like, like this universe started 13.2 billion years ago. We don't know exactly what happened at that moment, but then it expanded, grew and moves at uh, ever increasing speed until it starts to slow down. And the moment it re it does slow down it, um, the science says again, limited based on us being on this little rock and trying to figure out what's going on way, way out there. But the science uh, at least suggests in places that this would then collapse. And when it collapses again, it would start over fresh. So we may actually be in one universe among a million universes in the past behind us. There may have been multiple big bangs creating multiple universes that expand and, and develop and, uh, and then only to contract and explode and start all over again. And so that's one thought. And then the other thought is uh, this idea too, that, you know, the, the science that says there has to be other life out there, it has to be sentient. I, I push back against that. And here's why. On this planet of billions and billions of species, essentially one species got to the point where it could do the things that we humans do. Dolphins are brilliant. Whales are smart. They're just doing dolphin stuff because they don't have hands, right? They don't have fingers. They, they're underwater. So there is so many things that have to go right on a planet for one species to get to the point where it does something incredible above and beyond what everyone else can do and does it with a sentient awareness, can think ahead, can, um, can come up with imaginative ideas, which I think we're the only ones. And maybe, maybe whatever species came right before us, right? Like uh, Neanderth Neanderthals or something like that. 
that maybe the process is almost miraculous, right? Like it almost takes a thousand things to go right for it to happen. And maybe the chance of those thousand things going right is really difficult to reproduce on another planet. Who knows? Yeah, that, bring, that brings us back to the topic of awe that we've discussed on this podcast. And it's something that happens, you know, when you call that process and you just say, God did it, it's like, okay, maybe God did it. But then if you take God out of that, um, the, the miracle of life becomes even more profound, right, than when yeah. God did it. And so that that's a very common shift that I see with people who move from, you know, some kind of organized religion to out is just, wow, life is more miraculous the fact that i'm alive and having a conversation with you and we live in different yeah. places right now it's just like you can sit with that and just have your mind be blown at every at any moment right mm -hmm. and that's that's i think one of the blessings of just really looking at the science of how we came to be totally all right bill's wife joined us hi amanda all right. Um, next one I have is the concept of free will. So there's two things here that I want to talk about. So first of all, there's the concept of whether or not we have free will, and there's still debate on how we do that. Um, there's still debate on how much choice we really have. And, you know, you can get into the debates with Sam Harris when he debates other people about that to kind of see what you think about that. But the really interesting thing that I wanted to bring up with free will is not that it may or may not be an illusion, but also what happens when people believe that they do not have free will. And so Dan, Daniel Dennett, he's one of the, you know, four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. He's a little bit less well-known than some of the others. Um, brilliant philosopher, and he um, he believes that we do have free will and he'll debate with Sam Harris and you can get into all of that. But the interesting thing that he found is that there's studies being done about um, just your belief about free will. And so when people came, were confronted with the evidence that they didn't have free will, like they went through the class and it showed uh, you know, you'll do an experiment, like think of a celebrity and it's like, okay, Renee Zellweger and like, oh, why do you, why did you think that? Did you have a list and you, did you choose or did your brain give it to you? And it was like, oh, my, my brain just kind of gave me that name. Right. And they'll go through kind of practices like that to show that it seems like your unconscious is really giving you something. And then you're saying, oh, I have an idea that's, and it'll break down that illusion. So people would go through that process in a day of really breaking down their belief in free will, that they really have a choice in be able to see how much is really just our subconscious pulling the strings. And then at the end of that, they would kind of watch them and rate things and do all these things. And it, they found from this study that the people who believed that they don't have free will, like the illusion was shattered that day, um, became less moral because of it, mm -hmm. especially stealing for whatever reason, like mm -hmm. just skyrocketed of just, I'm not responsible for my actions. I want to steal this. I don't really have free will anyway, and I'm just going to do it or whatever, whatever happens in your mind to make that kind of happen. And yeah. so Daniel Dennett's idea is if we could really know if this was true, that for most people, knowing that you don't have free will um, is so debilitating of an idea that you lose all sense of morality. Is this like a 
bomb ingredient list that we just don't put out in the public, right? There are some things that we just decide this information is too dangerous for the general public and we lock it away somewhere and it's classified and whatever. And so he's saying the stuff that's coming out about free will is so debilitating to people's sense of self and their choices and their morality that we as scientists should not even talk about it or tell people that they don't have free will. So what mm. do you think about that? So I'm aware of that data as well. We did an episode on another podcast where we had a long, kind of a long form discussion on free will for a bit. Uh, I'm also of the mindset that there isn't any free will, that everything that came before brought you to this moment, honestly, and however you acted, if we rewind the tape and you have nothing but what you came to that moment with again, you would make the exact same decision again. Um, so I know I'm also aware, like you said, that when people believe there's no free will, they, they tend to be less moral. They tend to make, uh, more choices that harm other people and take advantage of them. Um, at the end of the day, uh, I, I, I would wonder if there are ways to counteract that drop in morality. For instance, I, I know in my life, it's made me more moral. Um, I'm also, a, I'm very aware that while I don't have free will, if the lack of free will still has me choosing to listen to something new today, I get to show up tomorrow as a better human being, because that's the kind of stuff I listen to. And so I push myself to read things, think about things, wrestle with things, and it has me showing up um, as, a, as a better human being than I was the day before. But like you're saying, it doesn't work for most people. So if we tell people there isn't free will and we don't have a program in place that counteracts the negative um, behavior of people who learn that they don't have free will, the question I think is whether we should keep it. A, is it a dangerous idea that should be kept a secret? Um, I'm going to say no. And here's why, because I think that if we did that, we'd have to deal with the repercussions of it and it would force us into new lines of research and new lines of thinking that would also take us to a whole new place. And I think basing uh, your research on, um, on truth has a much better chance to lead to positive outcomes than basing your research on myth. And yeah. does that make sense? Yeah, I'm going to, I agree with that last part. And I think it's because um, truth seeking and truth is a core value for both of us. So maybe if we had someone different on the podcast, they'd have a different core value that would lead them to a different place. Um, but for us, I, I have the same kind of argument with nihilism. People will say, well, I don't want to let go of religion because nihilism causes suicide and nihilism causes all these kinds of problems. And I go to the same place that, you know, if in reality, we don't have free will and we are just evolutionary creatures and there's no God and those things are really hard, you know, we have to somehow meet that. We have to somehow accept that and overcome that in order for us to actually progress. Otherwise, we're just going to like be creating a fantasy world and then trying to live in the fantasy world. And then that will just break down at some point. So I agree with you that that even if it in the short term, 
is dangerous and hard, which I think the same thing about um, letting go of religion. I think I, I've seen people, I have a, a friend kind of in my circle who had a faith crisis and um, had a suicide attempt. And like, I feel that, I, I feel that. Do I want to hide some of the truths about organized religion because of that? And the it's a hard, hard, hard thing to say, but for me, it's the answer is no, because if this is reality, and it may or may not be, but we're trying to understand as humans right now in this time of history, we're trying to understand what's real. And so if that is what's real, we have to um, accept it so that we can be building tools to combat it, right? There are tools to combat nihilism. There's tools to combat, there's, there's ways to understand morality even in the absence of free will. And so it's more likely that those, those tools will be developed and come to the surface if we don't kind of lie to ourselves. And yeah. so I end up in the same place, but that is a really tricky one. That's a really tricky one. It, it also reminds me of other things, not anything that we've got in the outline, but it, this is really closely connected with me to the idea that everyone is predisposed to be who they are. So for instance, the way our current system is set up is we look at people like child uh, predators or serial killers, and we say like, oh, like they're choosing to do this bad behavior and they could stop any moment, but unlike you or me, they just choose to do it. And the reality is having spoken to geneticists on this very issue is that uh, just in the same way that some people are predisposed to be left-handed, some people are predisposed to be heterosexual or homosexual, people are predisposed to have inclinations to uh, pursue Due to their attractions, children, people have um, predispositions to kill. So, for instance, a serial killer. I'm, I just got done watching. There's a series on Netflix. I believe it's Netflix with Steve Carroll from The Office. And he's been taken uh, kidnapped by a serial killer. And then also Jeffrey Dahmer, I think, is on Netflix. Maybe maybe the Steve Carroll one's Hulu. But Jeffrey Dahmer is on Netflix, this new series. And it goes into kind of his mindset. And what you realize when you spend some time, and I've always been fascinated, by the way, with serial killers. Uh, what you what you learn when you uh, study their lives is that while you and I have have probably never thought about killing anyone, and if we have, it's because of a very direct connection to what some harm someone's done to your life. And so you're like, there are people out there who go like, oh, I wish I could kill this kid who bullied me in school or but this guy who did this to me later in life. But almost none of us in this human collective have the constant thoughts running through our head to do that kind of harm to people. And people like Jeffrey Dahmer can't stop thinking about it. It's all they can think about. And, and they're also trying to put off doing this more than they have to, but it overwhelms them and they have to do it. And so once you understand that people are born with these certain kinds of behaviors, it really forces us to change the system, which we haven't done yet. And you have to completely revise the system in a way that acknowledges that they are born like this. And to try to come up with ways to keep them at distance from those that they could harm and come up with better approaches because some of it, they really can't be reformed or cured. And, and so it really changes how we look at the psychology of it and hence the solutions that we come up with. Yeah. And we'll talk about this more when we get to, I think we're going to talk about prison things later on. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it reminds me of this Buddhist principle where, uh, you look out at trees and you never say like, oh, that tree is bad. 
And it's like, yeah. oh, if the tree is dying or if the tree is leaning or if the tree kind of did this weird thing or if the tree is being, you know, has bugs on it, you never say like, it's a bad tree. You say, oh, like, look at this tree. It's totally unique. And if you want to make the tree somehow like better and like blossom more, then you would like, oh, let me um, put more fertilizer in the soil and let me make sure that it gets more water. And we never think like, oh, this is a bad tree and it's choosing to like not flower. You know what I mean? Right. And so there's a Buddhist principle there of like people are trees um, and they've blossomed to the extent that they've been able to grow. And so like you say, even without the concept of free will, you can say that if my brain has a lot of complex machinery, some of it I can see, some of it I can't see, then you can still try to improve that, right? Improve the inputs. If I have these people in my ear, I'm more likely to make better choices. And then you can kind of, it's like you're the machine of yourself and you're putting in better inputs into yourself to get better outputs. And so, I don't know, there's a little Buddhism in there and there's a little, there's some concepts of free will in there, but it's, it's very interesting. I, I would much rather deal with the reality of what is and try to come up with the best ways to deal with that because I think that always puts us on better footing going forward. Yeah. yeah, totally agree. All right, you've got the next one. All right, so what does it say here? Believing Jesus will return and set everything straight. So there's this idea in religion, like, first off, and I'll combine it with another idea, which I kind of didn't want to do specifically because I didn't flesh it out enough, but uh, the idea that humans came into the world rather than from it, right? That's also a religious Christian idea. And so when you understand that uh, Jesus is going to come back someday and he's going to set the planet straight, then you get to always put off into the future any real effort to take care of the planet, to save species from extinction. And so you're watching, if you look over the last, let's say, uh, 10,000 years, the amount of animals that have been removed from this earth because of humans... Um, is is staggering. I mean, there are examples, for instance, of uh, when humanity landed in Australia and the uh, species that were there and how there have been mass extinctions of various species. Anywhere humans go, we are the only species that covers the geography of the entire planet. We are the only species that will eat almost any food that can sustain life. We don't have a specific diet. We eat everything. And so in this moment in time, the amount of pollution, uh, for instance, if you go on to uh, YouTube and type in uh, plastic river, for instance, you'll see places in the world where the entire waterway is just plastic moving down downstream. Uh, so the amount of pollution and plastic we're putting into the planet, uh, which by the way, they now say the science says the amount of um, uh, microplastics that we have inside of us is, is just enormous. Uh, I read a science article the other day that said there is no place in the world now where rainwater is 100% safe to drink. Um, and the belief that Jesus will set everything right allows us all to keep kicking the can down the street rather than deal with the planet right now, trying to keep that uh, synchronicity of how everything works together in place. Because if you believe Jesus won't return until some future moment, and he will, and he will put everything right, it doesn't matter what we do to this planet because the, for instance, in, in our Mormonism, it tells us that this planet will still be usable. 
So how bad we make things doesn't matter. Jesus will come and he will set it straight. It really takes the responsibility away from all of the people out there to treat this planet as if it is a, uh, a resource that doesn't, uh, isn't always going to be here. And the, um, the, uh, the, the weather and environment being so safe and conducive to human beings isn't a guarantee. And having clean drinking water, I'll give you one example here. Um, in Southern Utah, I'm deeply worried about us running out of water at some point here in the next 15 years or so. And it's a real concern, by the way. All the reservoirs are going down. Lake Mead is going down. Hoover Dam's got you know short, water short on the other side. Uh, but it's more than that. How many times, again, there's only so much H2O on this planet, right? How many times have you had a plastic bottle with a little bit left and you left the cap on and you threw it in the trash? How much of the Earth's water is trapped in plastic bottles all over the planet. And we can't ever get to it until that plastic decays enough that air can get in and that water escapes, right? So little by little, even in this moment, we are depreciating just by the fact that we drink out of containers with lids, we're depreciating the amount of usable water on the planet. And when you realize like in certain places in the country, it is becoming serious in terms of drought and uh, lower and lower levels of water in the surrounding area. Um, it, it also, this idea that we came uh, into the world rather than from it also sort of removes our responsibility to take care of everything and to see ourselves as part of all of it. And, and I'm deeply worried about, uh, I'm deeply worried about the idea that Jesus will fix things. That's probably cut. That probably has cut thousands of years off this planet working smoothly. Mm, that's a harrowing thought. So there's a couple of things that come up for me. I do think if we do like survive, let's say, you know, a thousand, two thousand years from now, they will look back at us and the amount of plastic that we produce for just a one time drink and then we throw it in the trash. I think they will look at that as like so barbaric. Like we yeah. look at, you know, Neanderthals as barbaric. Future generations will look at that and say, what a barbaric species that was <laughs> like yeah. like it is pretty shocking um that we just do that you know what i mean yeah. the thing about christianity that's interesting is that for some beliefs you can you know oh there's some debate or there's some moves there's some kind of theological moves that you can do but for christianity it's such a big religion and the big belief is that Christ was resurrected and that he's coming again, right? Like that's the unifying belief. In fact, there's a funny joke that says there's a, it's true though. There's only two things that unite Christians across two millennia, two ideas that have stayed the same. The fact that they believed that Jesus was coming in their generation and that they were wrong. <laughs> and yeah. it's true. I mean, right after Jesus died, Jesus is coming started. We don't realize like that started then. Like very, very soon after Jesus's death. Um, and it's been, you know, it's, it's been some time and some people will say, oh, he's still coming. Uh, but even believing that idea, you're right, is so dangerous because if you're wrong, right, if it's like Pascal's wager, but if, if you're wrong, we are blowing up our earth waiting for, because a book says that someone's going to come and make, and make everything okay. That's a really big gamble. That that is a gamble that even if I even when I was a 
believing member and I believed that Jesus was coming again. I, I've, I've been that person. It's such a gamble that I still wouldn't want to use plastic bottles. <laughs> like, it, mm-hmm. like it's too big of a gamble. Just, just even looking at the numbers. And we've talked on this podcast before that like I have shed tears over those two last female white rhinos that are going to die in our lifetime and never come back again. Like I have shed tears over those two rhinos because that is so sad. And it is more sad to me on this side of my faith journey than it was before. Like it is more painful on this side to look at those two white rhinos and know that, that we did this and we'll never like my children will never see white rhinos. Yeah. Species will come and go. But when you, again, I think we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, the Will Smith uh, documentary on the planet earth. If you go back and watch that, like everything depends on everything else. And what, what most humans don't realize is that as you keep removing uh, plants, animals, uh, environmental changes, every time you change something, you cause uh, ripples that you don't even comprehend how much balance. I mean, it's taken billions of years for this earth to work out all this synchronicity and anytime an animal does go extinct, which has happened long before humans, right? Anytime an animal has gone extinct, the earth has had millions of years to kind of recoup and figure that out and adjust. We are in a moment in time where we are um, tampering with specific things in that synchronicity on a regular basis to the point where the earth doesn't have enough time to recoup and work that out. And I'm telling you, man, if, if you don't believe me again, you won't see it, but your grandkids will, your grandkids are going to have to deal with a planet much differently than you and I do. Mm. Okay. Next one I have is this, this one is from Christopher Hitchens. Who's just, he's just a character and I wish he was still alive. It saddens me that his voice is no longer with us, but he said that one of his ideas, ideas that he hated. And the reason this stands out to me is because it's so shocking, but he says, one of the ideas that he hates the most in the world is the Christian idea of love your enemy. Mm. And the second I heard him say that I had like some cognitive dissonance because I'm like, well, you know, shouldn't we like try to understand the humanity of the other side? And shouldn't we, you know, you love the enemy within and you love, you love other people no matter what they do. And, it was so shocking for me to hear him say that. And he said, the reason that that was a bad idea and a dangerous idea is he said, my enemy is fascist, you know, theocrat dictators and all these Christians saying, love your enemy isn't helping me combat them. Right. So he, he was a journalist and he spent his time, you know, in the middle East fighting fascist dictators and all the pain that they cause and the torture and the suffering and just untold human lives lost because um, of the power of often religious fascist dictators. And he said, one of the reasons he hates love your enemy is because he says, no, like, no, I'm not going to love them and what they do and, and the suffering and make space for it. Like it's not okay. And I'm going to fight it. And that, and he sometimes would brush up against Christians who wouldn't go as far as him in trying to stop evil in the world because of this idea of turn the other cheek and love your enemy. And he said that 
in his experience, often in the Middle East, it made the problem worse when we couldn't unite um, as a Christian West and say, this is evil and needs to be not okay, right? And so anyway, what do you think about love your enemy, turn the other cheek? Is that a, if you is could, that a, yeah. If you could go back in time and visit Hitler as a baby, would, would you, would you kill baby Hitler? Uh, uh, Knowing what such, you know. Yeah, this is such an ick factor. I always thought you could just grab him, kidnap him, and then just drop him uh, off in another place, you know? And then his whole life would be different anyway. <laughs> yeah, I would try to do that. I don't know if I could... I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I could kill a baby just, even knowing just what pick he would up, become. Just pick up baby Hitler and just, you know, throw yeah. him off the third floor or something. Just yeet him off a building. I don't know if I <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I could. Although it's interesting you say that because sometimes this is where uh, one of the definitions for psychopathy that I really like is when you do the trolley problem. You have like, mm. oh, do you switch the do you switch the lever and you save five people and you choose to kill one or whatever? And mm. most people say yes, like I will flip the switch to save because five lives are more valuable than one. And philosophers get super into this, right? Um, but the interesting thing about psychopaths is that if you change that story and say, but to push the lever, you have to push someone off of the train physically with your hands and kill them. And then they'll hit the lever and then it'll go to the safe tracks and you'll save five people. So the equation is still the same. You're still killing one to save five, but actually having to put your hands on that person for people who have empathy and emotions, they'll change their answer and they'll say, no, I wouldn't do it. But a psychopath doesn't see a lot of difference between those two scenarios. And so yeah. they still would, which is and super logically Logic. If it's pure logic and no emotion, yeet, save the five people. <laughs> but the empathic people can't do it because because of the emotion of having to actually do it with your own hands, which yeah. it's a super interesting thing. I don't know. I don't like this question. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I was just going to, you know, to try to go back to it and answer it as you asked it. Um, yes. If, if, if love your enemy means we are more tolerant of evil. And I think it's really easy for us to collectively go, that's evil, that's not evil. Um, I think we do pretty good with that as a human species. And if we make room for really bad people, and I'll, I'll use the Russian thing as an example. If we have uh, Putin, who has been known for decades to be ruthless and power hungry and willing to go to certain steps to maintain control, and, and, and being tolerant of our enemies, because love your enemy, has put us in a place now where he could, if he, if he lost his mind, which I'm not sure he hasn't, if he's lost his mind and he decides today's the day, I'm tired of everyone else doing what they're doing, I'm going to hit the red button and I'm going to hit it multiple times and send things in multiple places. One crazy evil human being has the power and ability on this planet to uh disrupt humanity and rest of life on earth to degrees that none of us can even fathom it's not just a matter of oh i'll drop a nuke in la or drop a nuke in new york and this is the damage it'll do it's the reality that once you understand that if you want to send 20 of those things out there 
you change the temperature and environment of the planet in such a way that it would be very difficult for life and specifically human life to even exist. Um, and, and the effect it would have on crops and other res it just one person, we live in a world now where one person can truly on a bad day, change the entire planet forever. And so, yes, I'm with, I'm with him. We shouldn't have any tolerance for evil and we should nip evil in the bud immediately so that people like Stalin and Hitler, the moment it gets to be like, whoa, something's not right here. There should be mechanisms in place to remove those people and to try to make our planet at least as peaceful as possible. Hmm. The only reason, the only pushback I would have to Hitchens on this one is that uh, mystics always read scriptures, any scripture story, as if it's your own soul. So like all the people in the story are you and it's all happening within you, right? Mystics of any religion always um read scripture in that way. And I think it's a very healthy way to read scripture. And so when you're talking about love your enemy, there's a lot of like shadow work implications there of like meet the enemy within and find space for it. Right. Yeah. And so I've used that phrase before for that kind of thing, which I don't think is what he's talking about, but I kind of do like the quote of love your enemy, the, you know, the shadow, especially the enemy within. I think that that's a powerful idea. I think that the world gets a better, becomes a better place when we meet our shadows and make space for it in our sense of self rather than rather than repress them, you know? Yeah. And I mean, we all recognize on this side of things when you're, when you've at least almost awakened, you realize that boundaries are okay and boundaries are important. And all we're talking about when, you know, loving your enemy and, the, and what that leads to is the idea that on a, on a systemic scale, boundaries are still okay. It's all right that we put boundaries in place to keep really bad people from doing really bad things and to not allow those people to be in a position where they can do something atrocious, which we really are in that moment, right? Like something atrocious could happen any moment. Hmm. All right. So the next one, worldwide basic living income. What do you think about this idea? Yeah, the, the reason I threw this in, because I, I, I'm actually for it. I think that, you know, we used to live on a planet that didn't have systems in place, governments uh, and religious systems. And you were able to really do whatever you want, so long as you didn't hurt somebody, right? Like if you wanted to take a conscious altering tool that was out in the meadow, you were welcome to do that. And now we live in a world where systems step in and go like, no, 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 we, we know what's best for you better than you know what's best for you. So it puts all these rules in place that, um, that now have us all essentially on a hamster's wheel, right? Like we, like I was in Los Angeles and you couldn't believe the traffic. Like we took one moment, it, if I looked on my maps, it'd be a half hour drive. And then an hour later, it'd be an hour and a half drive because now it's 9 a.m. instead of 7.30 a.m. And what you realize is that all of these humans are, are doing the work of the system, right? So the system sets itself up and these people get up at a certain time, they eat their breakfast, they get in a the car, they drive to work, they do their job, they come home, they spend a couple hours doing what they want to do, then they go to bed and they get up and they do it all over again. And it's the way this world works. And, and we believe if we go back in time, people were able to do the hunting and gathering in a very uh, short amount of time. And then the rest of the time would be spent sitting around the fire, dancing, singing, 
um, cuddling for that matter, um, essentially join time with each other and connection. Now, there are certain things we really love. We love the healthcare system, right? We love the ability to treat things that, you know, 10, uh, 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, you absolutely would have died from. Your appendix burst 300 years ago, you die. Um, we're to a point now where we can help uh, our bodies to last longer. And there's also things that come with the modern society that also hurt our bodies as well. But this idea of a, uh, a worldwide basic living income, I believe in it. I think everyone should have enough to take care of the basic needs of life without having to be on the hamster wheel. That said, if we gave people that option, how many would take it and not do anything? And the idea of not doing anything. So I think we saw a moment in our country kind of when COVID hit where a lot of people stepped away from the workforce. And there's some debate about who that was, but we all know today that if we go to a restaurant, sometimes the uh, in-the-store restaurant is closed because they don't have enough help. It's only the drive-through that's open. I've seen Arby's and other fast food restaurants completely closed for a day because they don't have any employees. And you and I couldn't even have imagined that 10 years ago. It just seemed like everything worked. And it was like in this short amount of time, suddenly a bunch of people exited the workforce because they had enough to take care of whatever it was they need to take care of. And they weren't willing to go above and beyond to get extra. And yeah, if, not and so just I, above and beyond, but not willing to do a job that they hated. Right. That's yeah. part of the thing with mm -hmm. like flipping burgers forever because you're grinding to pay your rent to, 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 to and you're just stuck in the hamster wheel, yeah. which is why I love like the tiny home movement where mm -hmm. people just pay for their tiny home Live and they less. just, they, they, do you know how little you can live on when you just take out kind of the mortgage and car payment out of that equation to have financial freedom? And there's a lot of people in the younger generation that are looking at this hamster wheel and saying like, this is, this is not life. Like life has got to be more than this. So I do think some coming away from the workforce is that, man, if you're not doing a work that's at all communal and meaningful, because work was always communal and meaningful, especially, especially for women, women until the 1950s like we have thousands of years of women we always worked together and raised children together and then there was this idea in the 1950s that like oh just stay isolated in your home and raise your kids and then like we wonder why women like went psycho and got super depressed and isolated it's like for hundreds of thousands of years we as women like were communal we were gathering and that provided most of the food and we raised kids and we made baskets and we did it all together. And so to try to change that and go to a land where like, yeah, I'm going to drive two hours to the job to sit in a cubicle to pay for the home that I drive home to to sleep in. Like, what yeah. is even the point of that? And so I do think that the young, younger generation is seeing that a little bit. Yeah. And so if folks were given the option to have their basic needs taken care of as an automatic, and only if they wanted extra, would they go out and be producers in the system? The reality is then that most people, I should say most, but enough people would take that, that you would not have enough producers. It's, it's the same idea behind um, uh, population decline and some of the uh, things that people are scared with that happening. It's about ready to happen in China over the next couple of decades. And it's even proposed that it it's going to happen here in the United States over the next uh, maybe 50 years from now, 100 years from now. And the reality that if you don't have enough producers in a system, the system collapses. And there is real fears over that. 
So I'm simply saying that a worldwide basic living income, which I'm in favor of, because I think people should have uh, the freedom to use their time how they want and not have to suffer in terms of their basic needs. Um, the system could collapse. Now, the one game changer is we are in an age we were, where we are creating robots that can do the basic tasks of society for the most part. And we may come to a moment where that is the uh, the way in which we can shift over to people not having to work if they don't want to is that robots can take care of 60% of, of, of society's production. Uh, you can see already there are robots out there. If you want to pay $150,000, you can have a robot that makes your cheeseburgers and your fries for you. So we're on our way to something that may sustain that. But at present, uh, ideas that come out of certain political factions that suggest a basic living uh, income wage um, while I'm in favor of it, it also scares me a bunch that it could also be uh, part of a systemic collapse. Yeah, I have a different approach to that. Um, and then we'll start to have to move through these topics a little a little faster. And, and we can save them for, by the way, save them for yeah, another day too. Like we, we can might, do a part we two. might have to, because these are just so juicy. Yeah. But um, my thing with universal income is it mitigates the just how lucky or unlucky you can be based on where you're born as a human. And I think that, you know, the Republican political party as a whole um, would kind of push back on the idea that you're kind of born into some luck or some not luck or some unluck um, because there's a very strong concept of self-reliance and bootstraps and the whole thing on that, on that side of the political divide. But to me, I think it's worth doing just because it takes away the obvious discrepancies that I was so lucky to be born when and how and all the things that that I was. And for and I didn't earn or deserve any of that more than someone who was born in, in, into a really unlucky kind of area or situation. But for me, even if it causes some systemic collapse, which I think it would, the reason that I'm more willing to do it is because I truly believe that all humans desire for meaning and purpose. And so while that person may not go to McDonald's and flip burgers, they do want to walk through the woods and find mushrooms and make tea out of it and sell it to their friends because it makes them happy, right? And so the collapse would be a collapse of jobs that provide really no connection to other people and the planet and meaning and purpose for you as a human. And I'm willing to collapse all of that so that people could live in a tiny home and sell their homemade tea and be happy, you know? And so I, I, I have trust that, that people's innate desire to have meaning and purpose in life will cause people to be producers, anyone to be a producer. I think everybody wants to be a producer, but not uh, in a job that they hate that has no meaning. You know. Yeah. And, and as a side issue, I think you and I both agree, like every human on the planet for that matter, but let's start with the United States. Every human in the United States should have access to the same quality of health care that everyone else gets, right? Like if somebody in Compton, LA or Compton, California, I mean, um, has cancer, they should have the same ability to get the top of the line care as somebody who's super wealthy. And, and we don't live in that world. Folks who live in poorer neighborhoods have poorer health care. Uh, people who, um, just because of where they were born and the lot in life that they had, and people go, oh, yeah, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and 
just do what someone else does. And I think you and I both get that that's not reality, that people really are limited by what is going on around them in the life that they're born into. And we live in the United States of America and the, the amount of money we spend on all the pork barrel projects that are out there and the, the reality that we could, we could build a system. Like, again, this is the way the system, uh, the policymakers build it. Whoever the decision makers are in any system, the system is their, that is their creation. We could have built this thing a million different ways. We could have built a world where healthcare was valued and everyone had equal access to quality healthcare. It's not the system we built. And anything we do that moves towards people having more of their time back, uh, having access to uh, medicine and uh, healthcare that is uh, of equal quality to others, and not that doesn't mean you bring the best down, you bring the worst up, it, it is um, good for the, the human experience. That said, that's not how capitalism works. That's not how uh, democracy per se always works. That's not the way that certainly dictatorships and, and fascism, as we talked about Hitler, that's not the way they worked. Um, but we could have built a better system. The trouble is the people who get to make those decisions are the people who are in power or powerful uh, or want power. And those aren't always the wisest people who want the most good for everyone. Yeah, that brings us to our next one, which is really when you're talking about organizing, which institutions are the most trustworthy? Because you have religions that provide, like if you go to a place like Thailand, um, the Buddhist monks provide all the social services, right? So um, if you want to get married, if you want to study, um, when you the kind of social aspect of human life is really run by the religion, right? And there's corruption and there's monks that are, you know, cutting cocaine and stories that come out of that and all of that. And then you have um, capitalism, right? Where, you know, really just is going after the dollar and there's certain um, immoral things there. And then you have government, uh, which is, you know, politicians trying to make policies and then all the corruption that goes with that. And so if you have to, and then you have also just systems that are made based on just ground roots people, which also becomes kind of a, a mob, right? Because people were just very easily persuaded and, and we, there's kind of this mob mentality that happens when we just say, Oh, people can figure it out. And it's like, well, there's a reason that like a lot of the philosophers, Plato, Socrates, all these people um, really had a distrust of, of the people. Plato didn't even want people to be able to listen to music. He thought we were too, uh, you know, too easily manipulated. And so, you know, he had these philosopher Kings that were running the institution. And so it comes down to like, who, which one of the four that I named um, is the most trustworthy to run a system that provides, you know, benefits to society as a whole. And that, that's a really, that's a tough question. The one, the reason that came up for me is talking about prisons. And um, I think you'll be on board with this one, just because I know kind of how you line up politically, Bill, but there's a, there's an idea that prisons, um, we kind of make them more capitalistic in the sense that we create prisons that have financial prizes who, you know, if you release the most people, if you have people that are released that have the lowest recidivism rate, um, they get more money. And so you reward employees that are inspirational and educate and empower people. And um, 
you wouldn't have kind of an indifference to the kind of abuse that happens in prisons. And you'd have kind of a system that is pulling together to find ways to help people stay drug and alcohol free because they get rewarded for it. And so do we just make everything a capitalistic, do we, do we take things away from the government and turn it into capitalism in order to have the incentive for the best ideas to come forth? Or is that just too corrupt to take things away from the government, which a lot of local government is really run by, you know, well-meaning people and turn it over to capital? You know, how, how do we structure society? Who's the most trustworthy? I don't know. There, I mean, you're muted. Are you saying that there are prisons out there that the that they are rewarded based on merit? Or are you saying that that's maybe how we should do it? Yeah, that was an idea that came out in the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And the biggest pushback to that is Christians. Because the idea, there's a deep, and it's the same thing with the death penalty. There's a deep Christian idea of um, justice yeah. and punishment mm -hmm. and divine punishment. And you did wrong and therefore you deserve this. And so when someone talks about, I went to jail and then like, I came out and I'm a felon and so I can't get a job. And so I had no other options. And then, you know, there's, there's this little, it's kind of a Christian shadow side of saying, well, you chose wrong. And so you deserved all those bad things that happened to you. Right. Um, I've even seen this in, in Mormonism where if something bad happens to someone after they leave the church, it's like, well, you know, you stepped away from God. So of course that's going to happen to you. And so, yeah. And so the biggest pushback to that is, is often Christianity. So that, that's the reason that those prisons don't exist. And so if, if we try to say that we should do that, we should, we should um, give bonuses to the prisons that really provide the most help for those people to not return to prison, then um, there's going to be a huge pushback of people saying, well, then you're rewarding people for being drug dealers or stealing and you should punish them and not reward them. And so what are prisons for? Do we, are they for rewards because these people need help or do we need to punish in order to keep control of society and show that, you know, if you do this, you're going to get caught and go to jail and then your life's going to be worse. So that's a, that's one where Christianity really gets involved. Yeah. I mean, you already see prison systems are rewarded for getting the least amount of nutritional value out of their lunch menu, for instance. Right. So if you, you can go online and you could do a Google search on, uh, foods and menus in prisons and how that all works. Um, the food that they're given is not, not great because it's cheaper and they're rewarded based on uh, the number of people they have. So most prisons get subsidized by the government for the number of people that they have in there. The more people you have congested together, also the more problems you have. You also get paid to feed those people. And so the cheaper that you can feed them, the, the more money that you as a prison system make. And so, yes, it currently, sometimes prisons are sold into the private sector, for instance, and then often the care even goes lower because people are trying to squeeze every penny out of how the system works. I think you make a great point. One thing that you could do is you could reward everybody based on more successful measures. And, and also when you mentioned this idea that Christians are the ones that stand in the way, it goes back to our conversation on free will and on genetics. And if people are predisposed and don't really have a choice in what they do, this idea of punishing someone for what they did doesn't make a lot of sense. 
Um, and so there is a lot of conversation out there that there are better ways to build prisons than the ways we do. And that often focusing on punishment and justice is really the wrong focus, which is why I believe that truth matters. And when we start with facts rather than opinions, we can um, we can improve systems in a more efficient way. So I agree with you that if we rewarded prison systems on real merit of success, what percentage of those people get out? to not harm again and to lead healthy, productive lives would make a world of difference on how these systems are approached rather than how many butts can we get in the seats? How cheap can we feed them? How close together can we pack them? And who the hell cares what they do when they get out? Yeah, there's certainly better ways to do it. Yeah, one of the better arguments also to bring Christianity back in is one of the better arguments for religion when people say, you know, we don't want religion anymore. And you look at all the social services they provide. And when we had Jared Anderson on and we were kind of debating, he talked about how whenever there's a tragedy, it is it is still by far and away more religious people showing up to make the dams and dig out water from flooding and all the things than non-religious people. And so his argument was essentially that even though religion is very flawed, it at least has an ideal that's very good, like be more like Jesus or whatever, whatever the ideal is, be a good person, be a better person. Um, whereas capitalism doesn't really have that and politics doesn't have that. And people who just kind of group together don't have that. We kind of just get into a tribal mob mentality. And so his, his argument is essentially, yes, religion is very flawed in how it provides social services, but it's better than the three alternatives. And that is not the worst argument I've heard for religion. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's an interesting argument to consider. And yeah. it's the danger of secularizing society and having nothing that we're working towards as a society. Um, which, you know, we've talked about on this podcast before. It's that this is the danger of secularizing spirituality is that we don't have a collective God that we're working towards. We don't have the collective stories. We don't have the myths that are bringing us all. Yeah. And maybe that's going to make it worse. And Hey, that, that is a fair, that is a fair worry, um, on the side of religious people. Yeah. If we stop focusing on punishment, say, say we build a prison and we, when we brought people in, serious criminals, and we taught them skills, say we taught them how to weld or how to do carpentry or whatever it is, if we rewarded it in such a way that these people actually took serious, uh, learning to budget, learning to, you know, uh, again, therapy and hand, how to handle feelings and all the stuff that comes with what makes up a healthy, productive individual, and, and those folks left and they really were healthier and they really did do less harm than the group of prisoners that leave the prison next door. When you look at the ripples of that, um, person leaves prison and they don't cause more harm. So now there isn't other families that are affected. And now those families are like, it, it just goes forever. And the reality is if we could come up with a better way, the amount of perpetual harm that we would just stop would would be amazing and you couldn't even fathom the far reaches of that like there are better ways to do this yeah i i can see politically though that in some sense you are rewarding people who get sent to prison and if you want those resources you may be incentivized to do something to get you to prison right which is would what you want happened. to go to prison to learn to weld if i was really stuck if i had no other option i would maybe do riskier behavior 
knowing mm. that things would not be so bad if I went to prison. Absolutely. I like him. Absolutely. There's the, there's also, the also, they they did this in Michigan where uh, they were trying to help single moms who, and they, they kind of gave more money based on how many kids that you had. And the jump between like seven to eight kids or whatever it was, was a pretty big financial boost because man, these single moms were really struggling or whatever, but it was like a lot of kids. And over and it was really to help them because single moms were struggling and then there was the realization oh i have six kids but if i have two more i'll make enough you know and so it's like ooh, are we we were trying to help and now we're incentivizing the wrong thing because now you're trying to have kids in order to get more resources and that's not really what it was for so it's mm. it's really tough to find the balance between punishments and incentives and all of those things and this is where the right and the left will really kind of battle battle those things out. And the right, which again has a much more Christian background, is much more for the death penalty, for punishment, in order to maintain control of the system. And that's there's a lot of Christianity in that. My, I'm, I'm highlighting a couple that I really want to okay. I want to I want to go into. Okay, let me do one, and okay. then let me do one, and we might have to do a part two of this episode, but. But here is my most personal, personally for me in my life, the most dangerous thought that ever came into my mind. And I do want to do a trigger warning here that like, if you are barely hanging to reality, if suicide ideation is just kind of something that you're dealing with right now, I would just kind of turn this off and walk away. You probably shouldn't even listen to this podcast at all. Yeah. Um, there are times when just this we episode. can, yeah, just this episode. Um, <laughs> there are times when, complex ideas are just really you're in a safe place and it can be fun to talk about and there are times even for me personally um where i just say you know what i'm really struggling and going through something and i just don't have the mental space to be overwhelmed with new things right now so with that warning in place um because this was the most dangerous idea that came into my brain the the idea that i had which was really tough was the idea that evolution controls us right so it wants us to see people that are attractive and wants us to want to have sex with people so we can continue you know evolution is just pulling the strings mm -hmm. of all of this mm -hmm. and if evolution is inherently violent meaning every time that i eat something even as a vegan it requires violence onto another being that has conscious life it requires their death essentially every time that i eat and so if evolution is a machine of violence and I, without my consent, came into this machine, perhaps the best thing for me to do is the most moral thing to do is to leave the machine. And there are philosophers who really delve into this. Albert Camus was one of them. And he said the first question of philosophy is whether or not to make, whether or not to commit suicide because um, you, by choosing to live, you are consenting to the universe that brought you into existence. And that is not an easy question. Um, that can get really, really tricky. If you are in that space, there are a lot of tools that I found to kind of help me out of that thought loop. So please reach out to me. But overall, that was one of the most dangerous ideas that I've ever thought was that evolution is controlling me. I have no free will evolution is violent. And it's almost like this thought experiment. Like if I were to take you and place you into a machine 
And Bill, you're just sitting in this machine. Your brain is just watching this, but you have no control over the machine. And the machine is just like killing everyone with a machine gun. Would you want to be there in that machine? Mm -hmm. And your answer is no. And for some people, they think that that's really what life is, that 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 is the situation. That is the reality. And that is a very terrifying idea. And it, it took me some, I had to reach out to some mentors to help work me through that idea. But um, when, when free will falls for you and you really come into contact with evolution and the violence involved with evolution, um, that to me is one of the more dangerous thoughts on this side of kind of faith transitions. Yeah. When, so I've, I've got three grandchildren and I've got two sets of parents who have had those three kids. And every time I see a kid brought into the world and it obviously hits closer to home when it's your child or your grandchildren. But when I was 20, you know, my wife wanted to have kids really bad. So we had children. And as a grandparent, I go like, man, you're, you're bringing a human consciousness into a world that is full of good and bad. And for maybe most of us, more than 50% of us, that experience is positive enough that at least while we're living it, it feels worth it, right? But there are a lot of people on this planet who constantly run into troublesome things. They run into barriers to happiness and their predisposition already puts them at a deficit in terms of trying to be happy and to have a healthy, happy, successful, productive life. So even for the people who are having a, a relatively good go of it, bad things are going to happen in your life. And when you get to the end, so when, again, you're, you're right. I thank you for the trigger warning because I'm sitting there going like, man, this is not going to be a happy conversation. But when I get to the end of my life, whatever those last three minutes are, I don't think I'll be in my head going, man, thank goodness for my fifth birthday party. That was awesome. Thank goodness that I met my wife when I was 17. Thank goodness this happened. Thank goodness that I'm going to be stuck in those last three minutes, which are going to be a living hell. And, you know, people go, oh, you go peaceful, whatever you want to think. But I think most death isn't enjoyable. And, and so then I have to ask myself, like right now, I don't kill myself because I'm enjoying life. My life is mostly good. And um, I, I think death uh, is an is, is a uncomfortable way to transition from this life to whatever. So I avoid it. I'm avoiding it at all cost. Uh, my wife and I just in the last year have started to go to a rec center and work out because we just go, man, we're getting old and we, we want to live longer. So let's start taking care of ourselves, right? In those last three minutes, though, I don't think anything good that happened before is going to really matter. And, and, and we bring, we bring children into this world to suffer death and to, and for some of them to have really horrible moments and for some of them to have complete lives of just one thing after another being bad and hurtful and harmful and traumatic and shitty and painful and bad luck. And, you know, like there are places in the world you can be born where your life is just going to suck. And there are certain people, even in good places, whose lives are just one horrible coincidence after another. Yeah. It we'll may not have, be worth it. We'll have to do a couple things here. Maybe we'll end here. We'll end with this one today. Oh, that's a, do, that's a happy the, note. huh? No, no, no. There's a couple, <laughs> like, 
there's like a couple things there, which is like, yeah. is it ethical to bring children into the world? Which is yeah. like, that's a comparative um, thought. And I struggled with that question enough that even though I wanted um, a bigger family, that question haunted me because I was kind mm. of in more of a nihilistic place that I, I decided to adopt children. And that kind of was my loophole to get out of the problem. Um, but is it is interesting to think um, of the idea of should we bring children into the world? If you're secular, should you have more children? Because otherwise, only the religious people are having children. And then that really kind of sways things to religious theocracies. Um, and that's its whole issue. And there's just a lot there. So for anyone who's in this, I love this quote, uh, Oremus, one of our listeners quoted, uh, this is Hamlet, whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them. So Hamlet, you know, it's this to be or not to be, that is the question, you know, do we, do we do this? I mean, there's so much suffering. Do we even do this? And in studying that question, the best idea that I had not, or that I found that helped me combat it was this idea that, um, and it's again from Albert Camus, that life requires, um, in light of this knowledge, life doesn't require suicide. Life requires rebellion, right? And I loved this idea that in order to make life meaningful and to justify life and the violence and the evolution and everything in order to justify it, live a rebelliously meaningful life, which is going to look different than, you know, the grind to work in the cubicle, to get the car that has the brand name on it and, and all of that. It's going to be a much different life than that, but it's only a meaningful life that can stand up to that level of scrutiny. And so that was a really powerful thought to me that if I, if you end your life, it increases the suffering in the world. Your children would unbelievably suffer, right? If you had chosen to do that um, and your wife and your grandkids, and it would just ripple out suffering. And so if you choose to commit suicide or if you struggled with suicide ideation and you begin even thinking that it's the moral thing to do, what it does is it increases the suffering on earth because people will miss you. People will be hurt by it. And the amazingly cool thing that you could have done to make the world better, that's no longer an option, right? And so you eventually be, are becoming the thing that you hate because you hate that the machine has so much suffering. But then by taking yourself out of the machine, you just cause more suffering into the machine. And so the only way, the best way to combat that, whether it be children or um, yourself or suicide ideation or uh, evolution and free will and violence, the best way to combat all of that, if, you're, if you've thought about these things, is what I found from the philosopher Albert Camus, which is to live. It, it doesn't require suicide. That's just going to make the problem worse. It's going to make the suffering worse. It's to live a life of rebellion which is um, a meaningful life and a life where you are contributing in some way to reducing the amount of suffering in the universe. Even if, even if the star, you know, even if the sun blows up and even if nothing matters, and even if there's no God, 
because of how interconnected we are, the best thing that you can do with your life is find a, a meaningful, beautiful way to live that is uniquely you that reduces suffering in the world. And that's that's as powerful as a thought that you can get to combat some of those really, really dark, really dark questions about should we be even be having children in a world this evil? Mm, I, I love all of that. And, and the only thing I have to add to it is, and again, I don't want to be... I don't deal with uh, suicidal ideation and I've never really have. It's never been a thing on my plate and thank goodness. Um, Cause I, I know how heavy that is. Cause I have people around me who do, but whether you took your life today or whether you die of natural causes at 85, you're going to go through that experience. Now you might get to pick how, but you're going to go, you're going to die, right? It, 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 no man escapes death. And so that's an inevitable thing that's going to happen regardless. As you point out, regardless, that's going to happen sooner or later. In the meantime, you have a great opportunity to be a positive difference in the world and to reduce suffering, which is the Buddhist thing to do. You can reduce your own suffering or you can reduce the suffering of dozens or hundreds or thousands of people. And, and for those who struggle with those sorts of feelings and thoughts, Maybe you could turn the entire thing on its head and do something, as you point out, that the world doesn't even expect you or want you to do and be rebellious. I do think on this side of a faith journey, now we're in like a not so fun place. We're in yeah. like a deeper, darker place. But I yeah. do think on this side of faith journeys, there are there are dragons here, right? There's a reason that brains don't want to think about, especially the things that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that the brain really wants to cling to God or an organized religion or a story, or, um, I, I, you know, I'm going to see grandma again, so I don't have to think about it. There's a reason that our brains do that. And I didn't fully understand why our brains work so hard to cling to whatever order we have until yeah. I faced some of the dragons that you only see on this side of your faith journey, yeah. because no one, you know, including myself, I didn't think about any of these things when I had a story that I felt really strongly about because I just didn't have to think about it. I didn't have to worry. Um, I didn't ever have this thought of like, is there meaning at all in the universe and what even matters and does morality even matter? And should I bring children in this world? I never had any of those thoughts, you know, uh, before kind of bigger faith transitions. So there are dragons on this side that I think, that I think we should talk about, that I think we should be honest about, because one of the worst things about um, kind of religious versus, you know, ex-religious people is that the religious people often pretend to be really happy, right? This is the gospel of whatever, and we all have to be really happy because it represents that we're right. And then, but I see the same thing with kind of ex-religious people. There are some, there are many people on this side of religion who have kind of left religion who are really battling some big dragons, but they're pretending to be happy to prove to the religious people that it's better on this side. And so sometimes I feel like we're all just pretending that life isn't really hard. Like we're all just pretending that, that just everything makes sense and is okay. And it's just not even on this side where, you know, you and I, Bill, we talk a lot about freedom and we talk a lot about joy and awe and all the amazing things that happen on this side of, of 
kind of a faith transition, but there's dragons over here too. And um, I think we should be honest about talking about them because they can be really scary. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and it's out of my arena because it's not something I deal with. And so I'm, it's above my pay grade and I'm, I'm hesitant to, to add any more to it. I think you've covered it well. All right, should we continue on? It's up to you. Um, I, you know, we've got the Louis CK pedophile doll. I do want to do that one. That's a better one. Even if we end there, let's do that. It's a, it's a really sad thing, but it's, it's, there's also some humor there too. And and comedians are just so good about like using comedy to to find like a truth in there. So you Mm. do this one. Well, I'll just, I'll just kind of tell you what it is. So in Louis CK, one of his recent specials, by the way, Louis CK, great comedian, but he got in some trouble. He was, um, essentially there was a power dynamic with other comedians and he was asking to touch himself. And so he got kind of, uh, kind of canceled in that whole cancel culture, me too thing. Right. And he got canceled, but now he does kind of, uh, independent private shows that you can pay 10 bucks or something and get a show. So I was, I was listening and I, again, I'll, I won't apologize for that. I, I, I think Louis CK is a brilliant comedian and he points me towards some of my own psychology and thinking about the world in different ways. He has a bit where he talks about um, uh, child molestation and child predators. And he starts off talking about scoutmasters and, you know, not that every scoutmaster is a pedophile, but maybe the best ones. And it's a great point, by the way, because he argues um, that, that there are very few people in this world who want to take your kid out into the woods and teach them life skills. And that unfortunately, one of the groups of people that want to do that are people who want to take sexual advantage of your children and who are attracted to children. And so he goes on that spiel for a bit. And he talks about how we as a human collective allow our kids to be in spaces with people who we probably shouldn't trust so easily because of the simple motive that they enjoy and want to be out there with your child and that we ought to have more skepticism of all of that. He then proceeds to talk about how maybe... Maybe we could even fix the problem if we were to give child molesters, child predators, uh, lifelike dolls that were in the representation of children. And you could hear the whole audience go, ooh. And he immediately is like, fine, let them fuck your kids, you know? Like, and, and suddenly you're in your head going like, yeah, like why was I, why was I over here pissed about a concept of Maybe child molesters, if they had dolls of children that look like children, they would be less apt to do the abuse over here. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. We don't, I don't think we have enough research or science to say anything there, but maybe. And the discomfort in all of us to have a company out there producing childlike dolls for child molesters and how all of our discomfort goes, ooh, that doesn't feel right. And then the next thought is, but what if it actually stops them from having sex with your children? And and so then you have to deal with that maybe it's actually a good thing. Again, we don't know. We have to do the research. We have to think it out. We have to we have to we have to study this concept. But if it does, then maybe the best thing for us to do is to make lifelike child dolls for sex sex predators. Yeah, this question gave me a huge ick factor, right? It's just an ick. You just get an ick factor and you feel Mm. paralyzed. It's just really icky. Um, And I would lean on the science. If the science said that having a a child sex doll 
increase the need to the point that you want to progress to real children, then, then obviously I would say no. But yeah. if the science yeah. said that this really helped people who naturally feel this tendency to be able to have an outlet for that, and then it really decreases, um, you know, child sex trauma in the world, I would, I would have, I would lean on the science. I would lean on the science and I would, it feels icky. It's like an icky thing, but I would a hundred percent lean on the science on that one. If it reduces it 5%, the number of children not being traumatized and taken advantage of says you have to do it. Like if, again, if you are logical, you go, we just have to, it doesn't matter how uncomfortable it is for our mm -hmm. emotions mm -hmm. and our non-logical parts of our body to deal with that fact. But if it is in fact, uh, diminishes sexual trauma and abuse to children, then let's you know, let's, let's take some of the Ford cars off the assembly line and let's produce some dowels. Interesting. Okay. So I have like five more left and I'm just going to give you like a yes, no, like what, you know, just like a, give me a brief, like, give me a little vote here. Okay. Okay. So should we, this is Daniel Dennett, who believes that we should teach history of religion in schools, in public schools, you should have a class on the history of religion. Okay, I'm gonna make it at least a sentence. Okay, yeah, yeah. Just yes, yes, because if we teach human beings how much myth is out there and all the branches of myth, I think there's a better chance that people see outside their own lens. So I'm it's a big fan. Isn't it not, telling not, that atheists say, yes, absolutely teach the history of religion in schools? And yeah. religious people are like, no, 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 no. We'll do our own teaching. We'll do We'll do that curriculum over here behind our closed doors and whatever. Um, so it's very interesting that religious people are, you know, when asked this question, can we just teach the history of religion and we'll have a beautiful, I mean, it's not going to be like lowballing. We'll give the most beautiful arguments mm. for Christianity mm. and what it means to be a Christian person. And Buddhism. We'll let you, we'll let you guys Shinto. even write that curriculum that you want children to hear but everybody else gets their voice too and even with that they'll still say no isn't that interesting yeah, yeah i would want to teach all of them and very well so that people really saw the beauty in all of them and then i want to see what kind of adults we end up with in 20 years because i think they're better than mm -hmm. people who grow up with a limited lens so this is a new thing from science. This was mouse embryos were just lab grown and it said uh in, on March 17th, 2021, an Israeli team announced that it had grown mouse embryos for 11 days in artificial wombs. So that's about half the gestation period of a mouse. And so um, they also, so in April of the of last year, a U.S. and Chinese team announced that it had success that it had successfully grown embryos that included both human and monkey cells in kind of petri dishes to the stage where organs began to form and then they shut down the project because in order to continue they have to pass um ethics boards and they have not passed those ethics boards so an interesting thing is so there's a couple of questions here if we can create consciousness should we just consciousness should we um it if we can create embryos and grow them in labs essentially outside of the human body entirely should we if we can do genetic modifications should we if we can mix humans and monkeys and grow them in a lab should we um and then a big one is uh gay couples 
I, I heard this argument from Blair Osler, who's a great LGBTQ voice, who said that as soon as science can create a child from the DNA from two female lesbian parents, religion is going to have a huge problem because religion has this idea that God gave creative powers to a man and a woman. And as soon as you create a life that goes around that, religion's going to have a really hard time. And so she's really hoping for this day to happen. Anyway, what do you think about all of that problem? Uh, first off, for the Christians, your one of your commandments is to multiply and replenish the earth. I, I wouldn't think you would care. Um, yes, you don't want the uh, LGBT person, you don't want the gay or uh, uh, lesbian person creating children. But for the children's sake, why would you care? Like, you're multiplying and replenishing the earth. As long as we can show that these kids are raised to be healthy, healthy adults, and that being gay isn't contagious... Christians shouldn't give a shit, right? Um, I think they so, still are. <laughs> oh, they, they're sure as hell they're going to. It's the reason I yeah. said it, just to piss them yeah. off a little bit. Yeah, they're, they're going to uh, have a hard time with getting around this kind of God rule. Yeah. The The other thing, too, is going back to this idea of having children and the pain that's caused in just being a human and having a life. I often think choosing to have children, no offense, I have four, you've got kids, having a child is a selfish thing. It is, I want to have something. I want to take care of something. I want something to be reliant on me. I want, I want to perpetuate my genes. I want, you know, all the thousand reasons that evolution has programmed in us, this, this uh, uh, innate need to have a child and to bring them into the world and, 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 and help them live a life. And on some level, there's a lot of selfishness in the reasoning for that. Um, so as I sit and I look at this, this is just one other way to have kids. I don't, I don't have a problem with this way. It just, it causes me pause to think about having children at all. And you asked another question, uh, earlier, um, where you said, should we bring children to the world? Should secular people have more children? Have you ever seen the movie Idiocracy? So the whole movie is based on the, and the fact that we get so far into evolution and the system rewards deeply poorer people have with Poor people or people with less intelligence and sometimes both having more children. And if you follow that evolutionary line out far enough, it's the opposite of uh, Darwin, where the most, um, the best traits survive, it now becomes the worst traits survive. So the person in poverty or the person with low intelligence has eight children. Meanwhile, you and me have 1.2. Um, and then what ends up with a society that a thousand years from now follows that system. And what you end up with is a population of more poverty and lower intelligence. And so I, I'm just, I just, again, I'm not going to wade into this particular issue, but just having children, who has children, uh, why we have children, it, it's, that is a complex issue that I think maybe someday we should spend an hour and a half on. <laughs> Fair enough. It it is it is a tricky one when you think about. Um, there was one, there was one podcast I listened to where they talked about, uh, you know, should we even be here? Because how many how many gen if you were to look at your line, everyone behind Bill Real and the amount of suffering. Let's say that you you're living a great life, like you're really really enjoying life. But look, if you look at the generations before you, how many generations before you lived an entire life of suffering and yeah. poverty and yeah. despair? 
to create you who's having a pretty good day. Right. Yeah. And so the question is, if you were, if you knew that your kids would suffer and have really hard lives, but 10 generations from now, your great, 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 great grandchild would have a pretty good life. Would you sacrifice those 10 generations of your children and grandchildren for that great, 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 great grandchildren to have a good life? Or would you not? Mm. Evolution tells my brain not to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, 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 that uh, muddies the waters as far as when you're talking about bringing children into the world, um, you really have to think about what tools do I have to help this being not suffer? Otherwise, am I just having this child to fill this gap of meaning and purpose? And I'm sacrificing bringing, you know, a conscious creature into suffering in order to do it. Woof. And isn't it, you know, the, the conscious creature, again, I'm the universe expressing itself as a human for a little while. The conscious creature that is my offspring, our allegiance to our offspring and when it's completely not a logical, it's not a logical thing at all. It's it's not. And, uh, and I just, anyway, there's a whole rabbit hole there with why are we a, allegiant to our children and our parents? And then the further away you get the, the, that drops off really quickly. Really, really quickly. I really mean, quickly. we are, we are, we are, our brains are really just want to take care of our own tribe. And it just, it's really hard to get brains to care about anything else. If you were okay. told, like yeah. if you were told the 10 people closest to you could have a hell of a blast and everyone else on earth would suffer or the opposite. And you would be like, man, just let, let the ones closest to me have a great time. <laughs> it would. Yeah. I mean, my emotions would instantly want to do that. And then my mm. brain and my emotions would have a little battle in my head, which actually happens yeah. for me all the time. Yeah. All right. Uh, Last ones here. I, I hear this argument a lot that religions are popular, especially for marginalized and poor communities, because it gives a lot of resources to the poor and to the marginalized that wouldn't otherwise be there. So hope, community, ritual, um, resources, um, a place where you can help raise each other's children and look out for each other. And that religion provides that for um, poor, especially poor, uneducated and marginalized groups. And so there's an argument that I hear from really, really snooty atheists. This, this is a snooty atheist argument that we should allow religions to exist for the masses, but anyone, but you know, there should be an op opportunity to leave religion and transcend religion, but that we should leave religion alone because it helps um, people that otherwise may not have resources. So do you allow the illusion to exist because it gets people access to resources that they would not otherwise have? What would you do with that? Uh, I'll say it this way. It, it does certainly solve the problem that it at least in part creates. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, Religion also, the, the amount of giving up your critical thinking skills in order to belong and fit in and practice your beliefs as your tribe has told you they are true and they need to be practiced, keeps you from seeing the greater reality as it is and often just perpetuates the problem, even though in that religious tribe, you get some help to get through it. It's the actual myth and believing myth is literal in the expectation of loyalty and obedience 
that had the problem there in the first place. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I get this argument sometimes when people are debating liberation theology, which there's this huge, especially kind of black Christian um, presence that talks about liberation theology and how important that was um, when race was, you know, racial issues were much more prevalent than they are now in the United States and to have a group come together and say, Jesus is going to come and it's going to save us and kept, kept people going during this really, really, I mean, during slavery and this trauma. And so, you know, there's this question of, would you, is it something that we can take, we should take from people or it's, is it something that you must allow to exist until people outgrow it? Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so again, my brain goes off in another direction. So I'm going to say something different, which is if Jesus came back today, Jesus is standing right here in front of you and me. He's on the Almost Awakened podcast. And we said, Jesus, so glad you're back. Um, looking back at all that's come from you having lived a life, died, been crucified, three days later, rise from the grave. Are you Are you proud of all that has happened in your name and all that has come about because you existed? Or are you looking back with a lot of regret, wishing you had never been? Mm -hmm. And I almost wonder if Yahshua Bar Yosef uh, would would regret that he had lived it all. Hmm. It would, and it's so interesting because you know it, the mystic Jesus that may have been and whoever he was didn't write his own things. You know, he he walked around as a homeless man trying to do something different. And then all this stuff happened because of him. And it's interesting to think that historical mystic Jesus, radical Jesus, whoever he was, you know, what he would think of that. That's interesting. And, and people play the game where like, um, oh, if it wasn't Jesus, like that harm would have happened anyway. Well, if I, I'll tell you what, if we could take Hitler, uh, Stalin, uh, and name a few others, and we could just take them out of existence at all, I'll take my chances. Hmm. Right? Like, like whatever Jesus was, he caused things to happen Good yeah. and, bad, and not really him doing just people believing in him and perpetuating ideas. I do wish we could see how, if we could roll the dice again and Jesus ended up dying of typhoid fever as a baby, you know, yeah. what would have, what yeah. would have filled in, what would have filled in that hole? Because something yeah. would have, it's true. Like not Buddha filled up a lot of things in the East. Um, and yeah, the, the West had its own thing. And so that's how the world is structured because of these two, because of Jesus and Buddha, it's structured kind of the East mm. and the West. And yeah. what, if we could have rolled the dice again, like how could it have gone? Some things I think would be the same. Like I think patriarchy would still be there no matter how sure. we rolled the dice, because sim mm -hmm. quite simply uh, human newborns are too hard to take care of for women to do that completely alone. Um, because they're just too needy. They just require too much. Um, and so before, you know, human inventions that allow um, women to be able to do that a little bit, uh, even a little bit easier, um, we're just too dependent during that time because the newborns are too dependent on us. So I think patriarchy would still exist. But some things I think would be really different. All right. Uh, so differences between races. So here, here's a yes, no question that I'm sure you'll give a sentence, at least a sentence to, but I can at least phrase it as a yes, no question. 
when we do um, genetic testing on different racial or ethnic groups, and we find out, as we do with genetics, that because of evolution and da 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 da, society even, um, there are differences between ethnic and racial groups. And we find out, let's say, that Asian people are have actually a 3% higher IQ or whatever it is. Or we actually just recently found out that it was more likely that white people had more Neanderthal DNA than black people. But if it had been the other way around, let's say we had found that it was the other way around, are publishing those differences, those small differences between races, too toxic and dangerous to publish and talk about because of our tendency to use information like that to subjugate and um, judge and torture each other based on racial boundaries should we not publish those studies Man. at all publicly boom what do yeah. you do bill real what do you do yeah. truth seeker bill real <laughs> yeah it um the idea that stereotypes maybe aren't just stereotypes and there's some truth to at least some of them yeah you're i, I don't even want to wade into that like, that doesn't <laughs> even feel that doesn't even feel i mean i, I i'm much more uh, comfortable talking about pedophiles and dolls than, <laughs> than I am this. I'm I'm hesitant. Um, because what if what if uh, Italians are better at pickleball and uh, and uh, whatever you know, name it. What if uh, Asians are better at math and what if uh, white people? Yeah, man. And, and then suddenly the stereotype becomes data and science, and now you're left putting everybody into boxes when it only covers a portion of that group. So now you're back to being racist and bigoted based on stereotypes that are only in part true. Yeah, but then there is data. So do you publish it? You know, especially, yeah, I, so I mean, it was interesting that the Neanderthal article came out and it showed that it was that it was like white people have an average of 3% of Neanderthal DNA. And it was shocking because we didn't know that, that Neanderthals and humanoids got together and all of that. Um, but it, if it had been that black people have more Neanderthal DNA, would you publish that paper? I yeah. I'm telling you, I would not, I would not, I wouldn't trust. I wouldn't, I just wouldn't trust us enough to be able to handle that information given our Man, racial history in america you're hitting at the heart of it right like and, the whole point of this episode I usually is... would i usually would like publish it if it's the truth we'll deal with it this yeah. one is like ooh, i don't know that one's trickier yeah um this hits at the heart of the reason for this episode which is some ideas may be too dangerous even though they're science-based even though they're true even though uh, maybe it allows us to also make different choices that end up good, uh, you know, 200 years from now. The, the reality is that some ideas are so risky. It's not that they're bad ideas. It's that we don't know what would happen if we put that out into the ether and people yeah. started to pay attention it's like, to it. Like a, like a bomb recipe. We just kind of always say, you know what? I, I don't trust all of us enough to put that on the internet as public information, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I don't know. That one's a tough one. Me, me either. I know it can be. <laughs> okay. So yeah, that goes back to what we said at the beginning of this episode, which is we have no answers. I could be convinced on a lot of these, even if I had an opinion. Um, the transgender folks and gendered sports and all of that. 
Um, I heard one thing from Neil Tyson deGrasse. So what do you think about this idea? He said that when he was growing up, he was, you know, when you wrestle, you have different weight kind of categories and it's like every 10 pounds so that you would be competing against someone who was about your size to make it more fair. And so what he was saying with female sports is that we should do like a category for if you went puberty, if you are a female, but you went through puberty as a male, then this is your category. If you're, um, you know, and then like hormone levels. So like you're competing against someone of a similar hormone level. And then you add these contingencies, like whether or not you went through puberty is this or this gender. And in order to kind of be able to splice up the gender spectrum so that when we compete, it's on fair ground, just like we do with wrestling. What do you think yeah. about that idea? I think it's still unfair because at the lowest levels of sports, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have enough non cisgender binary people that they could actually compete with anyone else. Does that make sense? So the trouble is, yeah, that works maybe when you get to the professional level. So maybe for instance, in golf, you have a tee box for women and you have a tee box for men. Why don't you have a tee box for any other category that we need to parse out humans into? And you could, there's nothing stopping you from having a, an orange tee box in between the two that represents something else. But you have to allow kids all through every age, young adults through every age, if we're going to be fair and equal and give people the same opportunities, then we have to provide those folks a space at all age groups. And I don't think at that lower level, there's enough folks to make that happen. But I'm also, let me also jump in and say, I'm also not a fan of the back end of this, which is that uh, a person, a born male who transitions to a woman plays professionally at the female level. So for instance, I think there was a golfer recently who is a transgender female who's playing golf. And by the way, I'm more power to her and uh, I have nothing but mad respect and, and the, and probably has overcome more difficulty than many others around as we debate whether what's fair and what isn't, I'm simply saying on a competitive level, that doesn't feel fair to me. My logical brain yeah. doesn't, I can't as a make female, that fair. Yeah. As a female athlete, that doesn't seem fair, but here's an interesting argument that threw a wrench in it for me was, you know, when you're talking about top athletes, um, you talk about someone like Michael Phelps, he has like an enlarged heart and like ginormous arms, like his arms, like go to his knees. Right. So he's kind of like, a swimming freak of nature, right? Yeah. He has genetic help that makes it unfair because he's a freak of nature. Now, do you, does he train crazy? Of course, all of the training exists there. And so I heard an argument once that uh, people who are born as women but have high testosterone levels, right? Um, but are female, but just the amount of natural testosterone that they have is just far above and beyond. Um, maybe it's because they're intersex at some level, uh, but they, they were raised as female, um, participate in social life as female, and then, you know, feel like they can't participate in sports when in reality, is that the same thing? Are they a freak of nature as a runner because they have high testosterone in the same way that Michael Phelps is a freak of nature in swimming because he has long arms. She didn't choose, she didn't choose that 
So shouldn't she be allowed to play? And so it's interesting with genders is um, if we allow kind of the argument that, yeah, if you're a woman and you just happen to be blessed with really high testosterone, um, you're going to have a lot of benefits. And if we allow that, then essentially, eventually, um, a lot of female sports will be dominated by that kind of woman. And how do we feel about that? You know, is that fair in the same way that a lot of top athletes have genetic help that is not fair? I don't know that that yeah. that to me threw a wrench in it. You're right. Regardless of whether we're talking about the transgender issue or whether we're talking about Michael Phelps enlarged heart and long arms, the the reason one person wins over another certainly uh training time spent uh the types of drills and exercises one does no no if ands or buts that's a factor but what is also a factor is genetics and epigenetics and yeah. and hence does it really matter what genetics and which epigenetics are playing a role yeah but this, because we just have a lot of political baggage with this type of genetics, it kind of mm -hmm. gets us stuck and nobody really knows what, what to do. And we're probably you know, back we, to religion. If we have a transgender Olympics, is that is that celebrating this group of people? Is that segregating this group of people? That sh anyway, it's, I will say that one um, is just really, really messy for me. Really, really, it's really hard to see a way through that. Through that by the way, why why is transgender the hot button issue and not being left-handed or right-handed? And it again goes back to religion because we all collectively agreed to believe in a myth where people who are transgender are other. Right. Mm -hmm. So I mean, we just have so I mean, we're not going to be able to do anything with that problem for a while anyway, mm -hmm. even with even if we sat down and and had good science. I mean, we just have too much um there's just too much on the line for that question for a lot of people, right? So you have the LGBTQ community so marginalized, so ostracized that just want to play, right? And then um, you have religious concerns and social concerns and organization concerns. And um, how much do we cater to this, uh, a group of people that does not re represent the majority and how to, anyway, it, that, that one gets really, really messy for me, but I like at least the idea of moving towards like, this the, that idea from Neil Tyson to Grass that we try to at least start to it's it's going to be bad we're going to be wrong it's going to be really clunky but at least start to try to organize kind of somehow levels of at least sports so that like is um, kind of competing with like I think we can move in that direction mm. subtly even though it's going to be really awkward because it's we're just not going to get that right and we also we also don't know yet whether having a transgender female playing professional golf with other women who were born female at birth, whether what is the competitive advantage, right? Like we have like a test case essentially that we're working with. And what we don't know yet is over years and multiple opportunities to see different people in this sort of uh, experiment, to see if what we perceive as the male advantage has been lost by the point by the time that this is actually happening. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and incentives come into this too, because then, 
if you kind of, you can raise your hormones and, and train and then lower the hormones that you're testing at a certain level. And like, how much do we want to be playing that game? And it, it's, it's a very complex issue, but I, I think we've got to start trying to, um, trying to deal with it, even though I just think we're going to be, this is the first time in human history that we're trying to figure out really how, how do we do this? How do we restructure society to include these people who very much need to be included? Right. Um, and so I think we're going to be bad at it. I think we're not going to get it right, but I think we should at least kind of maybe start trying to, to do some groupings. Um, cause I don't think it helps the transgender issue overall especially for people who are already on the right for them to turn on a track race and just see someone just absolutely crushing. I mean, like double time crushing, um, other women. I don't think that necessarily helps kind of the temperature of the situation. And this is an issue of privilege as well. Again, I don't think most people have any concerns over a transgender man playing in male sports, right? So there's this idea that because women aren't evolutionarily as strong, as fast, as uh, powerful, essentially, that there isn't a concern about women coming over. It's really the women who have to fear uh, not having their fair opportunity with with uh, if transgender females are prevalent playing in their sports. Hmm. All right. So my last one for you, here's my last one, is... Um, violence in men and it's an argument i came across recently as we are um we're kind of in an era now where the feminine voice is becoming stronger and um you know me too and you know we're just having a feminine shift in society which is good and all the good things and there's some data that's showing that um that especially young men are really struggling with uh, violence and that, that there's some indication of an increase in violence. Violence uh, for a long time, I think since the 80s, has been decreasing every year, but that there was a little uptick in violence that was a concern. And it may just be a genetic or um, a kind of a numbers, a statistical anomaly. But there's a concern that because the narrative is very much um, female oriented and women and me too. And for example, I have four kids, I have two boys and two girls. I have at least a thousand children's books that are like feminist baby and uh, be like Mulan, be strong my like Mulan and be smart and brave like Merida. And it's like these princesses got this big overhaul and it's like, be smart and be brave and be wise and um, be a powerful woman. And I have literally thousands of girls books that are like, that message right but for my boys um they don't have especially because the conversation is so focused on 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 women and trying to balance those skills that young boys right now do not have um any healthy modeling of masculinity right it's only toxic masculinity and so what these young men are facing is that they have no model for how to be a man and if you are a white hetero man, you essentially have to walk out into the world and apologize. Like, I'm sorry for existing, right? And it's causing such a problem with young men to feel like it's wrong to be a man. It's wrong to be a white man. It's wrong to be um, a hetero white man, especially. Mm-hmm. That um, 
that they just feel no way to just be able to be shown how to be a healthy man because everything about masculinity is toxic in this kind of feminine Me Too movement. And so are we at a point now, so eventually the narrative has to kind of swing back and be able to include what does healthy masculinity look like for a man? I don't have a single children's book that's like, be brave like Prince Philip. Like those books don't exist. Like it is only female empowerment books. So at what point does the pendulum start to swing back? Because we are missing a lot of young men who are really turning to Jordan Peterson is the big voice on like, Hey, there's a lot of young men that like don't know how to handle being a man and are just really struggling. And Jordan Peterson has really become their King. Um, But part of it is because we don't have any modeling on what healthy masculinity looks like in society, except for just apologizing for existing. And so are we creating more violent men because we're not in, because we um, have gone so far on the female empowerment message. What do you think? That's a big question. Um, To the first half of what you said, certainly as time goes on, we're going to learn how this has affected us, at least as a contributing factor. And there may come a point where we have to like you said, the pendulum has to swing back the other way because the repercussions of what we're doing is so not good. Like, like it takes us into this idea that when you sit and think about like, oh, I'm really just an animal who developed a higher way of thinking. And so I look at the animal world and they don't do anything that I'm not doing and I'm not doing anything that they're not. They also do the behaviors of stealing and killing and harming just without the story attached to it that we place, right? We're still doing the same behaviors they are. And so um, there may be a certain amount of masculinity that we call toxic, which really does perpetuate the human species. And we may also learn that as we try to quiet that part of us, maybe whatever comes from that is even better than what human is right now. Like, I don't know that we know yet. And I do know that when you tamper with things, there comes great risk and we ought to tread carefully in this space of, Do we really want men who are raised to discard every piece of masculinity because of the toxic parts it also connects to? And I don't, I don't know. And and I don't know that any of us do, and we ought to be careful. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think that uh, something that came up also with Jared Anderson is that um, while there is privilege in, in being a, a male in many in many areas, there are also areas now where it is very, um, it's not better to be a male. So if you and I were applying for a job in education, like a, a professor or a chair, um, I would be hired before you. Mm-hmm. When you and I are talking about patriarchy and talking about um, post-religious religious trauma, religious trauma with women, Um, I'm a voice that's trusted more than yours just because Mm -hmm. I have a vagina and you have a penis, right? So um, there are areas where um, it's better to be a woman, right? And and, um, where the bias is the other way, especially in post-religious spaces where you and I play, it can sometimes um, be better to be a woman in those spaces because if I just say I'm a woman who was raised in patriarchy, people trust that I understand religious trauma, right? More quickly than they'll trust that from you. 
Yeah. And so the question is, are we there yet in the sense, not in the sense that, you know, feminism is over or patriarchy is over, but has the female voice been heard enough? Have we balanced the scales enough to swing it back at all? Or are we not, we, we can't do that yet because we just haven't dismantled enough yet. And so unfortunately yeah. young men, like you just need to hear some more female voice. If you look at the history of humanity and how long that pendulum has been in one direction, my hunch would be that it needs to stay or swing maybe even further in the other for some time now. Hmm. Like it, maybe it doesn't need to be 10 million years, right? Maybe it doesn't need to be whatever. Yeah. But probably more than a decade, right? Hmm. Probably more than a couple decades. Yeah. It's interesting, though, that we do have to start to pay attention to young males who are essentially being forgotten because um, we haven't we haven't really given them a message or a hero of what a man should look like. And I think yeah. that there's there's some struggle there that is growing. It's kind of like the shadow side of yeah. of only focusing on female empowerment is. And I've talked about this. This is something that nobody says. Um, but I've talked about this with other moms who have sons who feel like they don't get the same empowering messaging and positive modeling for being a man in the world that their daughters do. And mm. it's, it's something that's creeping up on us, but it's, it's a new thing because we've only been doing, we, you know, we have a lot of years of patriarchy and very few years of me too, but yeah. it's, it's a problem that's creeping up on us that I think that I just wanted to throw out there. Can I, can I ask you, all right, we've got one more yeah. if you've got time. Okay, all right, yep, okay, this one, me. I'm, I'm going to risk a lot because this just came to me as you were talking about gender and man, woman, and all the discrepancies. In a heterosexual sexual experience, men orgasm, I think it's like 96% of the time, okay? Women in a heterosexual sexual experience orgasm, I don't remember what it is, but it's let's say it's 58% of the time. Whatever it is. That's probably way That's, high, huh? That seems high. <laughs> <laughs> that seems high. All right. All right. So let's let's say it's 35%. Whatever it is. Okay. I don't care. Okay. Just low number. So men, 96%. Women, 35 I don't know what the number is. But I know that men is somewhere in the 90s. And I know the next number too, which is two women in a uh, lesbian relationship. Uh, the women report orgasming 86% of the time. Hmm. So there's this guilt trip and there's this imposition on men that men should put as much work into a sexual, it should be so lopsided. And what I mean by that is that, no, I don't mean any offense. What I mean by that is that men, the, the male body takes less effort generally than the female's body takes effort. And we know that just by the data I just shared, by the way. So, but there's this idea in, uh, in our society, in the world at large, that the amount of effort put in should be so lopsided that both the man and the woman orgasm equally, right? That they both deserve to have a enjoyable conclusion to their sexual experience and whatever work is required. But then I add the caveat, notice that two lesbian women won't even put in the work that it, again, I don't mean any offense. This will be heard that way, but I'm just, I'm, there is humor here, but there's also a, a truth I'm trying to get to that women with each other don't put in the degree of work that gets them to 96%. It's mm -hmm. just agreed on by all of us that it's more difficult. Mm -hmm. 
And so is, is the man, is the man so bad? Because the way it's told in our society is the man is so bad that it's lopsided. And the reality is he can't understand the other person's experience exactly. And even if he did, it wouldn't be balanced. Yeah. So I'm going to say to that, I don't, I don't think that it's men's fault because evolution appears to not have cared about the female orgasm. Mm. It just didn't care. It yeah. didn't matter for evolution. It needed to be uh, quick and accessible and, you know, men being able to have multiple sexual partners. And there's even like women across societies are attracted to men that are five years older and men are attracted to younger women are attracted to more resources and evolution is driving to me. Evolution is driving all of that. The reason you're attracted to a little bit older and more stable is because if I have a kid from this, you're going to have to take care of me at least for a year because it is so hard to have a newborn. It's just so hard uh, on a woman's brain and body. And so I, I don't blame men for, the fact that evolution didn't care about the female orgasm. Now, are there things that you can do? And men, I mean, men, so many men, you know, they need the sexual education. They don't know what a clitoris is. Uh, obviously, the the stuff online or when you watch TV, especially uh, if you're raised in a religion, it just seems like, oh, they just go under the covers for two minutes and then they both finish at the same time and then they roll over. And it's like, oh, my God. And so only there's, you, right? there's a lot that we can do there, right? There's a lot yeah. of sexual education. It could be way better than 96 and It could and be way better. However, um, however, I like the idea better that it's not men's fault that evolution didn't care and that everyone is responsible for their own orgasm when entering a sexual experience. And so I think that it's better. I think that that's a better way to deal with kind of evolution dealing the cards in that way is just to say you're responsible for yours and I'm responsible for mine. And this is how we participate together. And you deal with all of that by talking about it in a relationship or in, with a sex therapist or with a book, all of that. Um, but I think that that is more fair than just saying that men don't care about their partners having a positive sexual experience, because I really don't think that that's as true as the data shows. Um, I think that evolution is more to blame than, than men in committed sexual relationships. And what it also says that with probably very little increased effort, we could get the numbers to 96 and 86. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it takes some education, you know, on the on the men. But I think women also need to, especially if you were this gets back into religion. If you were raised in a religious place, you are kind of told that your body and your orgasm and your sexual experience is really owned by the man. Right. That's really done by the man. The man like you're kind of like this. You're kind of told to be asexual and pure and like you you know, men are allowed to be sexual creatures and boys will be boys, but women like, Oh no, like we are pure, we are the gatekeepers. And so we're not really allowed to be sexual in the same way. And then all of a sudden you're married and it's like, your husband is just supposed to own all that. And so I do think it's healthier to say that you're responsible for your own 
Um, yeah. But obviously a lot of education can help even that out. But I, I think it's evolution driving that more than, than selfishness. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad we took this one on. That was, that was a flyer. All right. So <laughs> that was two hours of just, you know, stuff that comes up when you don't have, en- when you don't have thought ending cliches anymore that you didn't used mm. to have to think about before. And mm. we have no answers, but we will sit with you and talk about it anytime. <laughs> My hunch, by the way, is that this is going to be a listener favorite. I mean, of all the episodes we've done, <laughs> just we get into some messy areas. It feels vulnerable because that. it's like I have no answers to these questions yeah. and I'm an academic. I want to have some kind of answer. And it's yeah. like, I don't know, Bill. I don't know if I want pedophiles having sex dolls. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, th- this is life on the other side. It's a lot more messy and there's a lot more to think about because you can't just have those little shortcuts out of the problem anymore. You and I were talking about maybe putting some sound bites on TikTok. I bet there's about 10 in this episode that we could use. There, there's some that I would not want to be on TikTok because I would like them to be in context. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure Quake will use one or two of these. So, yeah. So, uh, there it is. You know, oh. just Bill and Britt being real. And I'm glad you're back, friend. All right. Love it. Great conversation. Everybody, thank Brittany Hartley uh, for this one. She put it together. Folks, don't hesitate to, to send a donation. It's really how we survive. Uh, we pay Britt every uh, every quarter for the work that she does, and we'd like to be able to give her more. Please uh, go to almostawaken.org, click the donate button, uh, send us five bucks a month. That's 60 bucks a year. Uh, but if 10 of you do that, think of the power that has. If 100 of you do that, think what the power that has. And we can keep these kinds of fun conversations going. And today, my friend, was a fun one. We, uh, we really hit at some uh, world problems that no one was even thinking about. Yeah, we didn't get any closer to solving them, but no. we're, at least, we're at least framing the question, which is half half the battle. And I appreciate all your donations. Um, I Right now, I, I have three afternoons off per week where I have kids in preschool. And one of that is prepping for the podcast and another one is recording the podcast. And so yeah. this is really what I do with my, yeah. with my time. Um, and I try to bring up the things that I feel like would be the most helpful to listen to Mm. kind of on this side of a faith transition. And so I appreciate Mm. anyone who can support me in doing this work because um, it's not like I have 50 hours a week and this is just two hours. Mm. Um, I just have a couple afternoons and um, this is what I, this is what I want to do because listening to podcasts was just so helpful for me at various points kind of in my, in my faith journey. So I hope it's helpful for you. And you can tell just by today's episode, how much thought, goes into these kinds of issues. And I think you can tell by the comments on Britain myself that these are things that we've thought about and and spent time reading books and reading articles and listening to to things on YouTube and and just kind of studying it out. So one way to thank Brit for all that time that she spends to to put these ideas in her head is to send her a donation. Britt, amazing conversation. I'm really excited to see the comments on this one. And uh, you have an awesome day and I can't wait to talk to you again. You too, my friend. Bye. Take it easy. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.